0: Okay, so uh, if you would have Matthew 5 and verse 1 open in front of you just now. Um, I'm sure you can imagine actually what the last few weeks have kind of been like for me as your minister. We're beginning a sermon series. So can you imagine what it's been like? I've kind of over the last few weeks tried to read pretty much everything there is to read on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, uh, sermons, reading sermons, reading books, reading articles, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I've noticed as I've done that. I've noticed that nearly everything that has ever been written on the Sermon on the Mount begins in the same way. Nearly everything that's written begins like this. The author will say this. The Sermon on the Mount is familiar stuff. So I'll read a book this week or I will read a sermon. And the author will say, At the start, okay, maybe not everybody adheres to the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe not everybody agrees with the Sermon on the Mount, but everybody knows it. Like Christians, they know it off by heart. They know it back to front. People out in the streets, it's so seeped into national consciousness, this sermon. Everybody out there in the streets, not everybody is familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. This is how I'm going to begin our sermon series. I'm going to say the completely, I'm going to take the completely antithetical view to that. This is almost entirely unfamiliar, isn't it? Like, do we really, anyone in here believe that children growing up in Hackney or in other parts of London have even heard of the Sermon on the Mount? They haven't, have they? No way. And isn't it also the case that, to our shame, for many of us as Christians in here, the precise substance of the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps a bit misty, hazy, a bit vague, this sermon is actually unfamiliar to most. And I want to say to you, that's the greatest piece. It really is. Because you see what we're going to deal with here. Matthew 5 to 7. It's life-changing stuff. I mean, this really changes lives. I mean, this body of teaching from the Lord Jesus doesn't just kind of change our minds about stuff. Doesn't just change our attitudes. This can, does, and I hope will change people's eternities. So what do you want to do? You know what, what, what will we do together? Will we not look at this sermon from the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we not study it over the next few weeks as a congregation? So let's do that. Let's ensure that we've got it in front of us. Today the plan, as you can guess, I think, is pretty simple. We're going to look at one verse that will set the scene for the Sermon on the Mount. And the plan for the next few moments is really to try and answer three questions. Three really quite simple questions about the sermon on the mount so if you're ready let's begin the sermon series with this question to whom is the sermon on the mount addressed to whom is it addressed and what i want to do in this question is just before i answer it before we answer it from scripture I want us to try and knock away a couple of really, really common misconceptions that so many people have about this sermon. So I'll tell you what we'll actually do. To start with, let's flick that question on its head. What would it be if we did that? To whom is the Sermon on the Mount not addressed? Who's Jesus not speaking to here? So a couple of misconceptions here. Here's the first one. The Sermon on the Mount is not for everyone. Sermon on the Mount is not for everyone. Um, If we had a Tardis this morning, okay, if we had a time machine, and if we went back uh, a couple of generations in the United Kingdom to a time where people really did know the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what we would find if we went back in our Tardis? We would find that a lot of people view what we've got in front of here, in front of us here, as Jesus' ethical teaching for a society. So many people of yesteryear assumed that that was the case. Jesus, moral teaching, ethical teaching for country. I'll give you an example. My grandmother. I've used my grandmother as an example in the past. Spiritually speaking, a uh, nice lady maybe, but spiritually speaking, all over the place. No grasp, it would seem, of the good news of the gospel. And that's what she thought you were dealing with today. What's the Sermon of the Mount? She would say, oh, it's Jesus providing teaching for anyone who will listen. It's a roadmap for societal improvement, societal change. It's for everyone. My friends, is that correct and is that right? Will you engage in it with me? What's Jesus doing at this point in Matthew's gospel? Did you notice in my reading a moment ago, what's Jesus doing? He's going around, hasn't he? He's been speaking to everyone, speaking to the masses. What has he been doing? He's been calling for repentance, calling for change, hasn't he? Now my question for you is this. Where are the masses for the Sermon on the Mount? Where's everyone? I mean, Jesus is up a mountain. Did you notice that? He's up a hill and he is teaching. Where's the masses? Did you notice? They're still down the bottom of the mountain mountainside. Jesus is up there talking, preaching. The masses, the crowd, they're nowhere to be seen almost. Do you see it? This is not for, for everyone. This is not just a societal message, the Sermon on the Mount. That's a popular, common misconception. Let's put it away. Let's deal with a second common misconception, more technical. This sermon you have in front of you just now is not just for a future millennial age. This sermon is not just for a future millennial reign. That sounds a bit weird, a bit sci-fi, but out there, doesn't it? A future millennial reign and I thought long and hard but this week about whether I should even mention this or not but look at us we're not we're not a rural Presbyterian congregation that meets in a field (laughs) uh, somewhere or a forest are we we we're in the heart of a busy multicultural city And I'm right, aren't I, that some of you in here have come to this congregation uh, from a Pentecostal background. And some in here have come to us from uh, a charismatic Baptist background. And because of that, some in here, quite a few in here, are familiar with what is called dispensationalism. Aren't you? Dispensationalism, which is the view that the Bible is broken up into different eras, ages, dispensations. But listen, dispensationalism is also the view that imagines that Jesus is going to return, not at the end, not at the consummation, but he's going to return before that to reign on the earth, not the new heavens and the new earth, but on the earth for a thousand blissful years. Okay, dispensation will say that Jesus is going to return, not at the end, but before that, a thousand years thousand lovely years. Now, if you are familiar with dispensationalism, you also know what it says of this Sermon on the Mount. It says that this Sermon on the Mount is not for now. This Sermon on the Mount, a dispensationalist will say, is for that future blissful reign. Now, do you see what they're saying? They're saying, so high are the standards in the Sermon of the Mount. I mean, these are really incredible. Jesus has asked high standards. It can't be for now. It can't be for, for this. It must be for this future reign. Now, you'll understand and forgive me that I don't have time to go into dispensationalism just now. You, you forgive me for that. I do have time to point out that their view of the Sermon of the Mount is illogical at best. Isn't it illogical What does a proponent of dispensationalism say? That age is going to be beautiful. That age, they imagine, is going to be just blissful, harmonious. It's going to be great. Well, if this sermon is for that age, why does it deal with lust? If everything in that future age and that future reign is just going to be perfect, hunky-dory, why is Jesus so concerned here to deal with anger? Like, why does he deal with divorce? You see... You see how illogical it is. This sermon is not for everyone. And nor is it just for a future millennial reign. So we've tidied up and we've dusted away a couple of misconceptions. What can we do now, friends? What can we do? Can we not answer the question... And I want to just give you one solitary word and I want you to hear it and I want you to think through the implications of this one word I give you this morning. Who, to whom is the Sermon on the Mount addressed? Listen to the word. Christian friend, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to you. This sermon that Jesus preaches on this mountain is for you. See, look with me to the end of our verse. Please do that chapter 5 verse 1 look at the end of the verse who's he speaking to he's speaking to the disciples now what's important to know is that that is not a technical usage of disciples do you see what i mean it's not the 12 because at this stage jesus hasn't called all of the 12 matthew's using this generally for what for followers of jesus and so this morning i look to you and say hang on are you a follower of jesus Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you see what that means? This sermon is for you. This is a sermon. Is this not good news? But if I have good news for you, I also have a challenge. Because if your eyes are still down at the page, maybe you notice that Jesus doesn't call the disciples to him. You know, isn't that subtle? Jesus doesn't call his disciples. It's they who go to Jesus. They kind of take the initiative to go to him, to hear this sermon. So this is my challenge. Will you, Christian friend, do that for this sermon series? Will you come to Christ Jesus to hear the Sermon of the Mount? What does that mean practically? It means this. Please prioritize. London City Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Friends, if we are embarking on this sermon series, you need to be here. You need to, if Jesus is speaking to you, you need to gather. You need to hear what he's saying through his word. Will you be here every Sunday morning for the next couple of months to hear from God? Because isn't it a little bit exciting to your heart, to your soul? Isn't it, doesn't it move you just a tiny little bit to think this sermon for us we get to listen to jesus and we get to hear him speaking to you and to me okay second question is this if we know who jesus is speaking to right we've got it it's a thought that the son of god is speaking to us the second question is this what is jesus going to do in the sermon on the mount what is he doing did you notice actually the posture that Jesus assumes. Truly, really, that's quite interesting. That Matthew draws our attention to the fact that Jesus sits down. So that's the common posture of teaching in the Bible. So at least even from that, we know that Jesus is going to teach. That's what he's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount. But how and what is he? What's he going to teach? Well, um, I wonder. Maybe the boys and girls. Can help me with this one, but I wonder if anyone here has uh, heard of Bible project videos. The boys and girls heard of these. maybe some of the adults have heard of bible project videos there 's a smile or two from the back that's kids. Bible project videos are excellent. What they do they seek to encapsulate the story of a book of the Bible in a really short video. So maybe you can do this not today, maybe, but tomorrow. If work's slow, <laughs> tomorrow you can do this. Go on to YouTube. Don't blame me if you get caught doing this at work tomorrow. But go onto YouTube, search for Bible Project Videos. And what you'll find is maybe a video about the book of Ruth. And what it'll do is it'll be a short couple of minutes and it'll show you the theme of Ruth and the points of Ruth that sort of idea. So it's Bible Project Videos. We've all got it. Well, if we are going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what we probably need? We probably need a Bible project type summary of Matthew's gospel. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just test you. I'm going to ask you three questions. And you see if you know the answers to these three questions about Matthew's. This will test us. Okay, Matthew's gospel. We're ready for the first question. Did you know that Matthew's gospel splits into five sections or parts? Did you know that? Matthew's gospel, five sections. Second question, let's dig a little bit deeper. Did you know that in Matthew's gospel, each of these five parts contain the same elements? So in each of the five parts of Matthew's gospel, you have a bit of teaching, you have a bit of narrative, a bit of story, and you also have a delineating verse. So for each section, you've got a verse that marks the end. You know, Matthew's basically shouting at us. This is the end of that section. So it's teaching, narrative, and this delineating verse. And then this is the third and most important uh, question to ask you. Did you know that each of the five sections of Matthew's gospel revolve around the same theme? I would almost want an answer from you on this. What is the theme of Matthew's gospel? Do you know the answer to that? The theme is the kingdom kingdom of God. And you understand, I hope, and I pray, Christian friend, that that is not a place. That is not something geographical or physical, the kingdom of God. It is about the rule of God. It is about the reign of God. And maybe you look at me just now and say, well, that's an awful lot of information to take in, Andy, about Matthew's gospel. And Maybe it is, but doesn't it help us now with the Sermon on the Mount? Because I can now say to you, You know what the Sermon of the Mount is about, don't you? And you say back to me, it's about the kingdom of God. This is about the kingdom of God. Or more precisely, please hear this. What Jesus is doing in the sermon is unpacking what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. In this sermon, he's showing us what it means, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? Jesus shows us in this sermon and I have to be frank with you and honest, what he shows us isn't perhaps welcome, and it sure isn't easy to hear. I want to tell you why. When I first became a Christian, so maybe 20, 21 years old, one of my friends paid me what I thought was a beautiful compliment, and I really was so chuffed with this. Now, this is a guy that I got to know over the course of a few months, playing football, playing music. I you know, I hadn't really got to know him all that well. But to my shame, I'd known him for a few months, but I had not said one word about my faith, not one word about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then one day, through a mutual acquaintance, this friend of mine, he heard that I went to church. He heard through this guy that I was a born-again Christian. So what does he do? He drops everything, comes to the house, knocks on the door. And we have a conversation. And he says to me, I cannot believe that you're a Christian. I can't, Andy. There's no way. There's no way you're a born-again Christian. You're not w- weird. Obviously, to know me that well, yes, very good. But he says, I can't believe you're a Christian. I can't believe you're a Christian. You go to church. I can't. Why can't you believe it? Because you're just like the rest of us, man. You know, he's just like one of the boys. Guys, there's no way you're a Christian. No way. And I took that as the greatest compliment and I was so pleased. But today I see the utter shame in that. Don't you see it? Because what is the Sermon on the Mount about? What does Jesus say? Best summed up in a couple of words, Jesus says in the middle of the sermon, do you know what he says? He says to his people, do not be like them. Don't be like them. You understand? What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a Christian friend? It means you and I are to be entirely different to the world, different to the society in which we live. And I'm right, am I not, that we just don't like that message at all. We try and water it down. and We try and say, well, we'll try to be a little bit different, a tiny little bit different. That's not the message here. You and I as Christians are to be radically different, to radically, drastically stand out. John Stott, we know John Stott, right? The former rector of all souls. He says this about the sermon. He says, in the Sermon on the Mount, you are called to be counter-cultural. That's the message from Jesus. You and I are supposed to be a church, a counter-cultural, counter to the world outside. People are not supposed to look at you and me and say, just like one of us, just the same as us. Do you know what they're supposed to do? They're supposed to look at your life and your values, everything, your relationships. And people around are supposed to scratch their heads. People are supposed to London City Presbyterian Church and declare, I have never, ever seen anything like this ever before in my life. You are called to be different. Now again, I think it's true that this is not a common message for the twenty-first century church. Such is the decline of Christianity in the West. What does the church focus on? We focus on evangelism, and we focus on witnessing, and we focus on the need for community. And we all say, absolutely, that is wonderful. Do you know what I find most striking about chapter 5 and verse 1? The most striking thing for me is the setting. Have a look at the start of the verse again, please. What do you notice about the start of verse 1? Picture the scene. What do you notice about it? Jesus could still see the crowd. Now, isn't that something? The lost were there. Like the unbelieving masses were there. And yet, what does Jesus do? He still has time to speak to his people on the mountain and to call for holiness. The lost are there and he still calls for holiness. Do you not see a message? Is there not a message for us? Even in such need in London, we have to prioritize obedience. Friends, it is essential for the church, essential for us to prioritize holiness and standing out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we have an answer to the question, don't we? What is Jesus going to do in this sermon? He will look to you over the next two months, three months. And he will show you from his word that you and I need to change. He will show you that we need to be different. And he will show us how. So we see to whom he speaks. We see what he's going to do. And then the third and the last thing this morning The question, who is it that's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount? How do we see that from verse 1? Who is it that's preaching? I wonder um, if you've had your ready brick and your caffeine this morning, if you can work out what we're doing with the text. I wonder if anyone's got this. We're working backwards. Did you notice that we're working backwards? Now, the first question was, who's he speaking to? And that the answer is at the end of the verse. The second question is, what is he going to do? We move back a little bit. He sits down. He's going to teach. So if you follow that, and if we're working backwards, what are we left with at the start of this verse? Have a look. What are we left with? All we're left with is this. Uh, Seeing the crowd, which we've dealt with, he went up on a mountain. That's the only information we're left with. He went up on a he went up on a mountain to do. There surely cannot be anything, is there? I want to suggest that we learn two really important points from the fact that Jesus went up a hill. The first is this: we learned the Sermon on the Mount happened. Because um, maybe this, this morning you can imagine uh, what a lot of liberal scholarship would say about the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine? <laughs> it doesn't take a lot for us to imagine what a critical scholar would say of the Sermon on the Mount. They would say this did not take place, wouldn't they? I heard that at divinity faculties in Scotland time and time again. Sermon on the Mount never happened. What Matthew has done is he just acted like an editor. He's heard certain things in Jesus' ministry, and he's kind of, over the years, put them all together, and he's pretended that it's a sermon. It's just cut and pasted, this, okay? Now, you can see maybe from the text that how nonsensical that is. What does Matthew do? He gives it, first of all, a chronological reference. Like, I can answer the question, when did the Sermon on the Mount happen? i can say it happened after the first disciples were called right there's a chronological reference more than that what else does matthew do inspired by the holy spirit he gives it a geographical reference like he actually says to us like where did this happen he went up a hill like it actually wait do you see what matthew's saying this is not make-believe Okay, it's maybe a summary. We maybe don't have it all, but this happened. This wonderful sermon we're going to study, it happened. Jesus spoke these words. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I love, I love, I love, I love it. What do we learn about the fact that Jesus went up a hill? We learn something about who our Savior is. Because um, how well do you know Matthew's gospel? If you knew the answer to those three questions earlier on, come and tell me afterwards, okay? How well do you know Matthew's gospel? If you know it well, you maybe know what Matthew does at the very start of his gospel. What Matthew does at the first opening chapters is he draws a parallel between two people. Two characters, a parallel of Matthew's gospel. Jesus, obviously. Who's the parallel at the beginning of Matthew's gospel? A parallel between Jesus and Moses. Now you think that through with me, if you know it. It's marvelous. Think about it. Just as Moses had Pharaoh trying to kill him in his infancy, what does Matthew record? That Jesus had Herod trying to kill him in infancy. You see? What else with Moses? Just as Moses was... Taken into the desert, the wilderness by God, what does Matthew record of Jesus? He was taken into the wilderness by, by God. Just as Moses was taken out of Egypt, what does Matthew record about, uh, about Jesus? What does Matthew record about Jesus? You know, with Jesus, God took his son out of Egypt. Another one, Moses was taken through the Red Sea, was he not? What does Matthew record? That Jesus passed through the Jordan in his baptism. Do you see all of these parallels? I could, I could, I they had half an hour, could keep going on. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, you see parallels. And, and now you see the point. Because where did he go? He went up the mountainside. And do you not hear what Ma- uh, Matthew's saying to us, the Holy Spirit's saying? That just as Moses went up, sinai to receive teaching from god so what are you learning here that the lord jesus christ goes up the mountainside to give teaching as god like do you see even in this parallel there is something there is a hint at jesus identity his authority this is the this is the son of the almighty god we are dealing with here but even that is not the important thing because I want you to understand that this glimpse into Jesus' identity you get as he walks up that mountainside there, that, Christian friend, is going to happen week in and week out during this sermon series. Do you hear me? What did we say Jesus is going to do in this sermon? He is going to show you what we must be different. We must be holy. And you answer this, do you not, Christian friend? What is holiness in his essence? Is it not being more like Christ Jesus? Is holiness, is it not Christ-likeness? Do you see as we are shown how to change over the next few weeks, as we are shown by Jesus how we are to be different, we will see more of him. Does that not stir you? Does that not excite you? In the sermon, we'll not just be shown what God wants from us and what God likes to see in us, what pleases us. We will be shown Jesus. We will be shown some of his attributes. We will be shown some of his characteristics. Does it not move you? Does it not excite you? And so I end with two words. One to the Christian and the person who is not. First to the Christian. Again, friend, I plead with you to engage in this sermon series like you have never ever done before. If we are going to encounter Christ in Matthew 5 to 7, should we not, as the people of God, prepare to do just that? And so I will make it very specific in application. Will you, Christian friend, read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety this week? It is three chapters of Scripture. It will take you even if you read slowly, 10 minutes, will you not read these words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me flesh it out. Will you not read that yourself? Will you not read that with your spouse? Will you not read it with your flatmate? If you are a parent, will you not please read the Sermon on the Mount to your kids this week? We must prepare to hear from the Lord. And then, to the non-Christian in here, to the person who is not born again or trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, we've looked at one verse. I don't know how many words it is. There's no many words this morning. But surely, if you're not a Christian, you see what you must do. Do you see where you are spiritually if you're not a Christian? You are at the foot of the hill. You are not even on the mountainside. You are excluded. You can be seen, but you are not there. Surely, see what you must do. You must put the hill-walking boots of faith on and the rucksack of repentance of your sin. And by the grace of God, you must ascend the mountain. Friends, you know you're a sinner. Will you not do that? Will you not trust in the grace of God? and be brought by him to listen to the words of Jesus. Become a follower of the Christ, the one who is above all else, the perfect and majestic Son of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, when we are confronted with the reality of Sanctification of the priority there is on obedience uh, for Christians, uh, how we recognize uh, something of our feelings, Lord God. We know that we are justified by faith alone. It is a work of grace. So Lord God, we do pray that you would help us to be different, to stand out, to not be as the rest of the world and all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray all of these things Amen